Matthew's gospel is the first of four gospels in the New Testament, in the Christian scriptures. We're going to spend time this morning in chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. Many of you know that I have a son who is training for ministry. Uh, I just was talking to him on Friday, and he's um, preaching this morning. He told me at a church in Kitchener, the church that he's serving at, but I didn't ask him what he was preaching on. But this morning, I took just one of the verses I'm going to preach on, and I threw it up in my Facebook. And he's like, Dad, that's what I'm preaching on today too. So I thought that was kind of cool. I trust that my sermon will still be far superior to his. <laughs> but that it will be a blessing to, uh, to the congregation he's uh, preaching to today. So Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25 is what we're going to explore Now, this passage introduces us to this biblical concept, which is written on the wall behind me, Emmanuel. And the interpretation of that is that God is with us. This is a foundational Christian truth. Now, there are many foundational Christian truths, many truisms that we're like, yeah, we believe that. But it's really important for us as Christians to think about why we believe what we believe and why God has told us what he has told us. So what is it about Emmanuel, this notion of God with us, that is supposed to affect our lives? Is it just something that allows for a nice holiday with Christmas tree and some tinsel and gifts to be exchanged? Or is there something beyond the truism that is meant to arrest us and change us? I'm going to suggest to you that there is, and we're going to be asking and seeking to answer the question, are you living a God with us life? Are you living a God with us life? The way you think, the way you act, the way you respond, the way you prioritize, the way you sacrifice, is it evident that God is with you? And have you allowed that truth to affect and influence your life? It's a core truth and we need to hold to it very tightly, especially during challenging times. We're going to explore the importance of Emmanuel and how The importance of Emmanuel alters the way that we live. If you get a hold of this truth and wrestle it to the ground and think about its application, it will change the way that you live. We're going to start with the importance of God with us and then speak further on about application. So Emmanuel is uh, so important apparently to God that Jesus endured the shame of apparent illegitimacy in order to make sure it would happen. In order for God to condescend into our world and live among us, he opened himself to an allegation, to ridicule, to criticism. Oh, there's Jesus, the the illegitimate child. I won't say the word in full, but you'll remember there's a crass word that starts with a B that historically was used to refer to children that were born illegitimate. There's always stigma attached to that. Christ allowed himself to be stigmatized, to be ridiculed, to be thought of as illegitimate in order that God might move among us. And there is no record in any of the four gospels of Jesus ever defending himself against that allegation. The word of God theologically informs us that he was actually conceived by the Holy Spirit. 
But can you imagine if you knew of a young woman or if you are a young woman and suddenly you're pregnant out of wedlock and people start to talk about it and maybe they wouldn't talk about it as much in our culture because it's more normal than not, but in ancient, more virtuous cultures, someone would come to you and say, oh, you're pregnant out of wedlock. Yeah, but it's from the Holy Spirit. It's like, yeah, right. I don't believe you. You can understand that there's a lot of stigma attached to this, but Jesus permits himself to be stigmatized. That's how important it was for God to be among us. Here's how the text reads. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place this way. We'll just pause there for a moment, and let's just consider this announcement. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place this way. Apparently, there's something we need to know in this report that's about to be delivered. We often say when we read the Bible that there's no such thing as a throwaway line in the scriptures. There's no extra material. There's no filler information. There's no scribbles. There's no doodling. Everything that God included in the word of God is intended for our benefit, to bless us, to instruct us, to encourage us, to train us in righteousness and so forth. So whenever we encounter a piece of information, a report in this case, we need to ask, what's it there for? Why do we need to know about the birth of Jesus Christ? Why couldn't we just sort of move on to his ministry and his crucifixion? Why do we need to know really anything about the birth of Jesus Christ? And out of all the things that could be talked about, like whether he was three days over or right on his due date, or whether he cried within five minutes, or whether he was nine pounds, six ounces. Why do we have this information recorded to us in the word of God? We're going to see why. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. So betrothal is different than a modern engagement. In modern cultures, we typically find a couple getting engaged and then several months later or whatnot, they are married. The engagement signals that they're about to get married, but there's nothing legally binding about an engagement. It's just an informal agreement with a ring generally involved. But a betrothal in ancient times was a legal binding agreement. So you would be betrothed for a year to make sure the woman wasn't pregnant and then you would be married. But if something went wrong during the betrothal period, because it was a legal agreement, it would, it would require a full-fledged divorce. So here we have Joseph and Mary, they're betrothed. It says before they came together, they had not yet consummated their relationship. It was found that she was to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And the world looked on and they said, what? <laughs> yeah, right. Are you kidding me? From the Holy Spirit. In fact, even righteous people raise their eyebrows at this. Look at the text. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man, he's a righteous guy. He's actually a man that's portrayed in the scriptures with no flaws. We don't know of any of us. We know very little about Joseph. But like many biblical characters, it doesn't mean that he's sinless, but the Bible doesn't really record his flaws. He's just a just man. And in fact, he's so just, it says he's unwilling to put her to shame. Imagine how enraged 
most husbands would be betrothed husbands to find out that their wife was pregnant, supposedly through another man. But being a just man, unwilling to put her to shame, he resolved to divorce her quietly. Let's talk for a moment about the doctrine of the virgin birth. It's a fundamental doctrine. We call it a cardinal verity. In other words, it's core. It's not one of those things you can deny and be a Christian. A lot of people running around today, I'm a Christian. Oh, really? Do you believe in the triunity of God? No, then you're not a Christian. Do you believe in salvation by grace or faith alone? Well, no, you're not a Christian. Do you believe in the virgin birth? No, I think that's just a myth. Then you're not a Christian. Like there are definitions to what a Christian is and a Christian is not. And we can disagree on a lot of things, but you can't disagree on this. The virgin birth is a core doctrine to the Christian faith. And why is it a core doctrine? Was Jesus born of a virgin just so that we could go, wow, that's cool. Kind of unique, kind of different. Puts him in a different category. I heard of a Christian preacher many years ago say, I believe in the virgin birth, but it's not a necessary doctrine. Obviously, he never connected to the dots. That same person uh, has since apostatized and is no longer a follower of Jesus Christ. Surprise, surprise. He doesn't understand Christian doctrine, didn't, didn't think through the details of it, among other things. Why is the doctrine of the virgin birth essential to the gospel message? Well, you have to go back to Genesis chapter 3. And in Genesis chapter 3, we know this interchange that took place between Eve, the woman, and the serpent. And ultimately, she's duped. And Adam's standing there. He doesn't say anything in the text. And they rebel against God. But who is it that gets labeled as the first sinner? Adam. Adam is the spiritual head. Adam is the spiritual head of Eve. He is the forefather of every person in this room. And because of Adam's sin, the first Adam's sin, all of us as a result are conceived with a sin nature. And then we just learn to express it in space and time in various sinful ways. So it's not enough to just moralize people. This is the problem with false religion. Oh, well, we got a problem. We'll just moralize people, make them live better. Yeah, but you don't, you're not dealing with the core issue. We're conceived in sin. We have a sin nature. Our forebear, Adam, plunged us into sin. We're all damned because of him. So when Jesus comes into the world, as the scripture teaches us that the sin nature is passed through the male line to the descendants, by being born of a woman, he is indeed fully man. But by being born of the Holy Spirit, he's not born in sin. He's born righteous and pure. This is why the book of Romans calls him the second Adam. Jesus now is poised to both forgive and die as our eternal sacrifice for our sins. This is why the doctrine of the virgin birth is necessary. Well, with regard to this confusion that arose early in Jesus' conception, one might ask the question, why would God not clear this misunderstanding up right away? So Joseph is confronted with this news. And there is a period of time, could be 24 hours, could have been a couple weeks, we don't know, between realizing Mary's pregnant and receiving revelation from God explaining to him why. 
Well, what happens in between there? He's fearful. He's hurt. He's thinking through the issues. He realizes like he has this major predicament. And God, God permits it to happen. God could have said right out of the gates, the first day that Joseph ever met Mary, hey man, just so you know, it's within my plan for you to be betrothed to this woman. There's going to be this little event that's going to happen. I want to kind of tip you off to it in advance because I don't want you to have your cage rattled too much. I don't want you to be fearful. Don't want you to worry. I don't want you to put yourself in a position where other people are going to belittle you. I, I, w- I certainly wouldn't, wouldn't expect you to you know, go through an entire pregnancy with her where you know, your, your brothers, your father, your uncle, your former roommate are belittling you for being with a woman that's been messing around with somebody else. God could have cleared that up right from the beginning. But for some window of time, he allows Joseph to be fearful, to be perplexed, to be hurt. And while our situations are radically different, one of the things we could say about events like this and about the fear in general that we experience in life when God doesn't always reveal everything to us up front is fear minimally serves to remind us of our frailty, our need, our neediness, and that sometimes there's no tangible explanation apart from revelation from God why things happen the way they do. But... Ultimately, angelic revelation from God solved the question marks in Joseph's mind. Now, early in the life of Christ, we learn that many of the things that Jesus claims to be, many of the things that Jesus does, will do, are going to be open to a lot of critique. Right from the beginning, we're we're kind of tipped off. This guy's life is going to be open to a lot of critique and misunderstanding. People didn't understand the virgin birth. The majority of people obviously didn't accept it, didn't understand it. Jesus was reckoned as an illegitimate child. And this pattern starts to just repeat itself over and over and over again in Jesus' ministry. Where Jesus says something, people don't understand it. Jesus preaches a message, they don't get it. Jesus performs a miracle, they misinterpret it. Jesus makes a claim, they twist it. Jesus was subject to all sorts of allegation and criticism. And he doesn't seem to spend a great deal of time trying to preface his miracles, preface his sermons with, you know, hey, just just in case you're about to misunderstand me here, I just need to let you know, he, he actually allows a lot of these misconceptions to just go on and on and on. Did you notice that about Jesus' life? But to the believers, to those that were leaning into Christ or learning to follow Christ or about to become disciples of Christ or who had become disciples of Christ, time and time again, they receive these golden nuggets of revelation from God that make clear what other people did not understand. And the same is true of Jesus' birth. 
through divine revelation, through a dream, God reveals to Joseph the truth about the circumstances that he was in. Now, God reveals himself to his people supernaturally, and he has since the beginning of time. God has used prophets and apostles and dreams and the written word of God to, to reveal to us divine revelation time and time and time again. But you know what? Modern man has this crazy notion that divine revelation is like bottom of the barrel knowledge. Bottom of the barrel. It's virtually useless. It's, it's suspect. So in modern epistemology, the study of knowledge, how do we know something to be true? We, we place a, a high premium on our capacity to know. This is why we live in a trust the experts world. Everyone has their specialty. You're an expert in this, an expert in this, an expert in this, an expert in this. You got your PhDs all lined up in all these different disciplines. And ultimately, even among many Christians, we, we trust the words and notions of men. Sadly, often, often more often, then we trust the word of God. We're, we're almost kind of like a little ashamed and a little awkward to suggest that, you know, we believe in miracles and we believe in divine revelation and we believe that God can do amazing things. I mean, that's, no, well, let's just trust the experts. But in, in, in actual fact, divine revelation is infinitely superior to any thought you could ever think up, any equation you could ever invent, any theory you could ever prove or justify. Divine revelation always trumps man's knowledge. And we need to be reminded of this because sometimes we have this inferiority complex as Christians when the world challenges us and says, you know, like, you believe that? What a lunatic. You, you think that's true? We've just proven it's not. And it can rattle our cage because if you're told, it's like a child with an inferiority complex that's been told he's an idiot from the time he can earliest, you know, from his earliest memories. If you're told growing up in Western culture, that the Bible's not true, God's not real, science is king, trust the science. The world's rational, we're irrational. It's actually an epistemological battle. It's a battle for how a person knows something to be true or false. And unfortunately, many of us have bought into a humanistic, secularized, scientific worldview as to how one knows something to be true or false. And we've largely rejected divine revelation. And so even when we come to the word of God, we don't always read it as if God is speaking to us. But again, the word of God is always superior to the word of man. Jesus is often thought of as a joke. This is why, this is why, this is one of the fundamental reasons why the world does not see the ministry of the church of Jesus Christ as essential anymore. Because at the end of the day, while they try to be polite about what we're doing, they think this is... 
a complete waste of time for the most part. This is useless. This is not essential to your well-being. This is not a this is not essential to your identity, to your life. This is this is not important. It's literally more important for you to be able to buy two by fours at the hardware store during a lockdown than for you to be fed on the word of God, literally. That's, that's where it's come in our culture. And many Christians, the majority it seems, seem to be okay with that. And that instead we'll just play the, you know, love your neighbor card. May I remind the world that we love our neighbors more than the world loves their neighbors because we have the love of Christ in us. And it's the work of the church of Jesus Christ, like I said, that keeps many people out of hospitals who've tried to take their lives or are addicted to various substances. So you see all these things all connect. They all connect. And here in this text, we have Joseph's misunderstanding and his fear being solved by divine revelation, which evidently held him strong for the rest of his earthly life because this allegation would have come up time and time and time again. But it's the word of the Lord that he received through the angel of the Lord that provided him stability and allowed his faith to continue to grow. In verse 20, but as he considered these things, so he's a rational guy, he's not knee-jerk, he's thinking about them for how long? I don't know, hours, days, weeks, don't know. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. And again, here we have God speaking to him through special revelation. He appears to him in a dream. What does he say? Joseph, son of David. Okay, why do we need to know that? Anybody? Why do we need to know he's the son of David? Because David was the messianic king, the forebearer to Christ. The Jews believed that the ultimate Messiah would be in the line of David. And what's amazing is that if you study the genealogies of the Gospels, that both Joseph and Mary are descendants of David. So they're like distant, distant relatives. So both in his humanity and in his relationship with his adopted father, Joseph, Jesus was of the royal household of King David. So Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So again, we have the virgin birth of Jesus Christ being prophesied some 700 years before. And this foundational doctrine introduces us to the sinlessness of Jesus Christ. Now, there are four things in particular that we need to think about when it comes to Jesus' identity and ministry. And these are the four things that are communicated to Joseph, which ultimately calmed his fears and which can calm ours as well. And you know what? They're all tied to the identity of Jesus. Now, sometimes when I go through challenges in life, I'm impatient and I want God to fix my problem quickly. Anybody like that? We live in an impetuous world, instant fulfillment. 
I've been in the drive-through for a minute and a half now. I'm about to pull the rest of my hair out. If you can't, you know, serve me my coffee, right? We want it now. Lord, I've been praying for 35 minutes now for a wife. Why have you not provided me with one? We, we want everything fast. We want things quick. We, we're not used to waiting. Everything's on demand. Now you can, uh, I remember a couple years ago, it's even faster now. I, I ordered a book on like a Tuesday afternoon. It arrived on like Wednesday morning. It's like, wow. Fast delivery. Everything's fast, 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 right? We don't want to wait. We don't want to wait. And we often think then that it's the solution to our problems that will alleviate our fear. But this is not true. It's the person who is the ultimate solution that will alleviate our fear. When we draw close to Jesus and understand his identity, it literally changes everything. Even if it changes very little in the immediate context, it still changes everything. So what do we need to know about Jesus' identity? Number one, he's from the Holy Spirit. Again, he's not naturally conceived, meaning he's not flawed. And because he's not flawed, when he bears the punishment of mankind and the wrath of God upon himself, he bears it for us. He's not bearing it for himself. Jesus didn't go to a cross ultimately to pay for his own flaws. He, he went in order to provide an opportunity for us to be restored. Secondly, in his name, the name Jesus means Yahweh saves. There's other, other people in the world that have this name. Years ago, I was speaking at a Bible college retreat, and one of the students, his name was Jesus, and we had a lot of fun with it because we were playing a soccer game, you know, and I think he was the goalkeeper, so he'd be like, you know, Jesus saves. <laughs> There's other people out there that have this name, but the name means Yahweh or God saves, and so by naming Jesus that, it informs us of his mission, that Jesus didn't come to just be a moral teacher, you know, another Buddha, you know, very wise and proverbial. Jesus came to save us from our sins. This is why we say that Jesus now is our savior. Third, he came to fulfill prophecy. So we have this ancient prophecy about 700 years earlier that's given prophesying this event. Jesus fulfills that. And of course, Jesus fulfills prophecy after prophecy after prophecy in addition to this in the scriptures. And I think this is a good point in the message to remind ourselves that we still have some prophetic promises from God that are yet unfulfilled, but we can believe in them. God has never failed to fulfill prophecies up till now, and he's, there's no reason for us to think he will fail in the future. Again, sometimes we're like, well, Lord, let's just make a deal. I'll trust in you if you can guarantee that I will escape this problem. <laughs> or I'll trust in you if you can sort of like fix the problem quick. Like I don't mind suffering for a, a week. But beyond that, you're kind of pushing the limits here, God. You know, I was reading from uh, Hebrews chapter 11 a week or so ago. In fact, I've read it several times. And this is that famous like hall of faith chapter, you know, the hall of fame. This is the hall of faith chapter where it goes through the lives of several biblical characters and just reminds us of how much faith they had. And near the end of that chapter, it, it, 
it just sort of, sort of all of a sudden gets into this discussion of what they endured. They, they were imprisoned. They experienced beatings. And then this is kind of grotesque. Some of them were sawn in two with a saw for their faith in Jesus. And then the passage goes on to say that the world is not worthy of them. And then after that, they still had to wait for the promises to be fulfilled. So th these people were so committed to Christ, they're willing to be sawn in two for their faith. Even though they did not see the promises of God fulfilled in their lifetimes. It's kind of convicting that we're all, I believe in the promises of God, standing on the promises, you know, of God. We sing it, we like it. But we sort of, I think, have this notion that, uh, I don't mind waiting a little bit, God, but you better, you better come kind of quick. Like, I want to see some promises now if you expect me to stick around. But these people believed and trusted in what God had revealed to them in spite of their circumstances. And because of that, what a blessed description. The world was not worthy of them. Wouldn't it be awesome if future generations said that about us? The world was not worthy of them. The fourth point that I want to emphasize is the purpose of Jesus coming. Jesus entered into the world necessarily to solve a problem that we could not fix. He came into this world to solve a problem that we cannot fix. That is the fact that we've been barred from heaven. God came our way so that we might go his way because, contrary to false teaching, we do not have the capacity to move in God's direction. Romans 3 is so explicit on this. I can't imagine that people, it's shocking to me that people like to skirt around that. No one understands. No one seeks after God. Read the text. That's what it says. Humanity has a natural bent away from God. We are rebels literally without a cause. And yet God woos us and draws us close by his grace. Jesus came because we couldn't go his way. And then in, in the here and now, God comes our way with grace and mercy because we, we have a natural tendency to run from him. This is why he's our savior. And this spirit of Christ is still with us. And through divine revelation, we can still encounter him and know him and trust him and have our lives transformed by him. Don't let man's skepticism towards divine revelation diminish your faith, rob you of your faith. You know, I was thinking recently, I talked to a few people about this, how every once in a while you have a Christian who's been around the church, at least a Christianized person, I would say, who comes and says something like, you know, I'm starting to question whether the Bible's true. And, you know, I know I've been taught this from the time I was little, but I don't really know if it's true. And they come with all these egg-headed objections to the veracity of the Christian faith. And you know what? Most of us are tempted to immediately go into a, an apologetic mode and we're going to provide the evidence for the accuracy of scripture and 
for the existence of God and all of that. And, and there's a place for that, I understand that. But you know what, the best question you can ask a person when they come to you and ask that is to say, what sin is in your life? What sin is in your life? Because generally speaking, the things people despise about the church or they despise about the message of salvation or they despise about the gospel is something they despise about themselves. It's not really an intellectual problem. There's sin in their life. They're not willing to obey. And so all of a sudden they pull the, there's not enough evidence card. Well, if you've received divine revelation, you don't need a whole lot of apologetics to know that the Bible's true. Because on a deep experiential level, you've been transformed by it, you know. You have the perspicuity of scripture. You can look at the scripture and you can read it and you can know in the moment God is speaking truth to you. It's that obvious. Someone's like, prove it. I don't need to prove it. I just know it. It's like a sixth sense. Don't let man's skepticism diminish your faith and don't let sin in your life that will diminish your ability to read and accept divine revelation for what it is, and that is absolute truth. How do we respond to all this? What is our response to God with us? Well, look at Joseph's response. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He didn't wait. He didn't go get a second opinion. He didn't read a few commentaries about it. <laughs> he just obeyed. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. By the way, if you've been taught in the perpetual virginity of Mary, you now have a problem with the Bible. <laughs> because the Bible does not suggest that Mary was a virgin beyond the birth of Jesus Christ. It says he knew her not until she had given birth to a son. So after that, the marriage was consummated. Otherwise, it wouldn't have been a legitimate marriage. And we know from the scriptures that Mary went on to have other children. Among them was James, who wrote the epistle of James in our New Testament. But that aside, he calls his name Jesus. And so having heard from God, Joseph exercises faith. And this would have been hard because I don't know how far along Mary was in her gestational process. She could have been two months, three months. I don't know, whenever she started to show. But he had to now wait. He had received revelation from God. Do you think anybody else really believed that? No, he had to endure the ridicule. He had to stick it out. He had to look like a fool. Look at this guy. What a desperado. He's girlfriend gets pregnant out of wedlock and he's still with her. What a desperado. Imagine the ridicule and the shame that Joseph endured, but he endured it because he was a man of faith and because God had spoken, that was enough to galvanize his resolve. What risks have you taken for your faith and your identity and your followership? Well, I can tell you one, you showed up today. It's a good thing. It's a wonderful thing. What other risks have you taken and are you willing to take? You know, the situation that we find ourselves in, we may discover in years to come, really isn't all that important in terms of the specifics. But what we might find is important is the fact that we had to stick our necks out. We had to do something risky is just simply galvanizing us for greater tribulation and trial to come. 
And that'll have made it all worthwhile. Because as I read my Bible, things probably aren't going to get any better. They're going to get worse. As Susie mentioned, every two hours, a Christian dies for their faith in Jesus Christ. We're like, yeah, that, that's in faraway lands. History repeats itself, folks. If you're a student at all of Western cultural, culture, you'll know that things are markedly different in 2020 than they were in 1990. Our culture is rapidly shifting away from its Christian foundations to its own detriment. And many of, of us understand that some of the laws that are coming out, Bill C-6, now Bill, labeled as Bill C-7, these, these uh, or Bill C-8, I can't remember, there's so many bills coming out nowadays, I lose track of them. But this gender bill that's, that is intended and will assuredly, you can mark my words, this is being recorded, will be used to muzzle the Christian church from proclaiming the full hope and gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Mark my words. It will be. More persecution is coming. Well, in the, in the moment, some of us tend to run and hide as soon as someone posts something nasty on our Facebook page. But that's the threshold of our suffering. Someone called me a swear word, a couple swear, good, good, good solid meaty swear words this week on Facebook. A former buddy of mine. He said, oh, I thought he was a buddy, now I guess he's former. Are you going to cut and run because someone makes fun of you? You know, we say sticks and stones will break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Well, that's not totally true. Words hurt. But are we going to cut and run just because there's words coming at us? Threats and words. Bullying behavior. We're going to cut and run? No. We're going to fulfill our duties because our identity is ultimately in Christ and he's revealed himself to us. So brothers and sisters, Jesus is from God. Jesus is God. Jesus saves like only God can. And if he saved you, that changes everything. Thank God. We now have hope. We have an object of worship and a new set of priorities to live by. So let's live large for the Lord Jesus Christ, no matter the cost, without fear to the honor and glory of the King.